When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Do you believe in ghosts, monsters, aliens, devils, supernatural and or paranormal phenomena in general? A story, a tale, a show will never cause you to become a believer. For that, it takes an experience. I speak from having my own experience. I'm still not sure the thing I dealt with and survived could be labeled so simply as a ghost or even a monster. No. I prefer to call it a devil. Maybe it wasn't the Judeo-Christian devil, but it was definitely a devil. I grew up on an isolated 90-acre farm set deep in a valley in the Appalachian Mountains in the Upper East Tennessee. Mountains surrounded the farm on all sides, and a road ran through the western side of the land that kind of connected us to the outside world. Though, we had little way to connect with anyone other than family. The farm consisted of four residential houses, three barns, a community smokehouse where all three families hung meat to cure, a two-acre tobacco allotment, a total of seven acres of vegetables, and ten acres of land for our livestock. You know, chickens, cows, pigs, ducks. And, well, we had a well-stocked fish pond as well. All this, and each household still kept a small dooryard garden just outside their kitchen doors. I always thought that was ironic because no one ever grew anything different in the dooryard gardens than in the larger fields. My aunt grew marigolds and a few herbs around the border of her dooryard garden, so I guess that was a bit different. My second great-grandfather moved his family here from Germany in the 1700s. He bought up all the land he could during his lifetime, and that was a few thousand acres. Upon his death, the land was divided equally between his six children. Each heir inherited approximately a thousand acres. My great-grandfather sold off a hundred acres to one of his brothers, but kept the other nine hundred. He ended up fathering twelve children. Ten of them lived to adulthood, and again, the land was divided equally amongst those heirs. That was a 90-acre inheritance to each child. My grandmother decided that it would better serve her family if she divided her land up before her death. She had five children and gave each of them roughly 18 acres. The only stipulation being that none of the land could be sold to anyone outside the family. She was adamant that each of her children sign an agreement to that end and if they were to die without an heir, their land would be cycled back to the original 90-acre plot and would fall under the ownership of the other heirs. Only two of my grandmother's children had children of their own, 
my father and his oldest sister. We all went to public school, and most of us, when we were of age, held at least part-time jobs outside the farm. For the most part, though, we kept ourselves to ourselves. You'd be shocked at how isolated you can be on a 90-acre farm. Life on a farm differs from life elsewhere by a far cry. It was normal for us to be harvesting and tying tobacco from the fields at midnight on a school night. It was normal for all the girls to participate on chicken killing days and all the boys to participate during hog killing time. By the time kindergarten was finished for me, I had learned to heavily edit or lie about what went on at the family farm. The teachers stopped asking me to share what happened during my vacation weeks or summers at the farm. They said it was too traumatic to the other children. If the everyday life stories were traumatic to them, what would they have thought of the supernatural horrors I could have shared with them? These stories were as true as the others. The Appalachians are rife with supernatural goings-on, and they're not always benevolent. In my experience, they're rarely benevolent. In the old days, it was a common practice for farmers to find water on their land, construct a well, and then build a house around that well. Therefore, many of the old farmhouses you find nowadays, especially out here, have a disused well in the basement area. My grandmother's four-story sprawling farmhouse had two such wells underneath. Granny always told me that the water for each well came from a separate source, and that one well sometimes ran very low or completely dry, and that's when the second well was utilized. The other houses had a single well in the basement, and there were a few wet weather springs on the property, and a mountain stream cut through the property and fed the fish pond. Water was never a problem on our property. And at the time, I didn't know that water could actually act as a conduit, a highway for the things of the supernatural realm to travel smoothly into our reality. All I knew at that age was that I had a gut-wrenching fear of one of the wells in Granny's basement. The one that ran dry sometimes. It was terrifying to me and I loathed going into that basement for any reason. There were many reasons to go into the basement too. One, cold storage, where eight large chest freezers and two upright freezers were kept. Two large root cellars, 12 by 12 room full of shelves on which Granny kept all her prepared jams, jellies, and juices. And of course, those damned wells. The first experience I had in that basement was the fall just before I turned four. I had followed Granny to the basement and helped her put away some potatoes and onions in one of the root cellars. She told me to wait down there until she came back with a dozen jars of fresh apple jelly. She didn't like for me to climb the stairs at that age, so I would sit at the bottom, on the concrete landing, facing the dark area where the wells lay, and I would wait for her to return, never more than a minute or two at most. 
The basement was huge, labyrinth-like, dark, dank, chilly even on sweltering hot summer days, and full of dark corners and shadows that kept me in the patch of bright light at the foot of those stairs. This day, I heard water slosh, as if someone was stepping out of a bathtub of water. I strained to see that dark spot where the troublesome well sat. I could see nothing at first. Nervously, I looked up the stairs. I could see the entrance to the kitchen, the bright light from the open doorway, and I could hear Granny humming Amazing Grace, one of her favorite church hymns. Everything up there seemed kosher. And the sloshing sound came again, and I spun in time to see a girl peep over the rim of the well. She looked wet, very dirty. Her eyes shone like oil in the dim lighting, and then she disappeared down into the well. My heart clutched in my chest. Had someone fallen into the well and was now drowning? The air became too thick to pull into my lungs as I mulled this over in my almost four-year-old way. No, that little girl had already fallen into the water. She'd been wet and dirty. Not to mention she had pulled up and peeked over the rim at me from inside the well. My feet carried me swiftly up the stairs and into the kitchen, past Granny and out the front door into the super bright sunlight. But I never told anyone about it. Never told Granny why I disobeyed her and ran up the stairs. But she never really questioned me about it either. I have a feeling that she knew. As a preteen, I was in the basement more frequently as more responsibilities were doled out to me. I was the only boy still living on the farm. My two cousins had moved away with their parents. The father was a preacher who went to Arizona to teach the Bible to the masses there. And I believe he was looking for a slice of fame too, though it never came. I did, however, leave one of the houses empty and it left me alone to learn the duties of house cleaning on the farm. My mother worked two jobs most of the time. I understand why now. She and Granny were at odds most of the time and my mother hated farm life. I went on to have other similar experiences in that basement and always harbored that terrible dread fear of that one well. Never did the other well fill me with such a feeling. And this was my life for 18 years. Then, the year I graduated high school, my parents were killed in a horrible car crash. Later that same year, my older brother moved to another state. My uncle, who still lived with Granny, well, he died. And my dad's twin sister and her husband moved away. And, well, that left me. I inherited my parents' land because my brother didn't want anything to do with it one very sick aunt, and my grandmother to run the farm. To say the least, the whole thing was dwindling. Without the helping hands, we simply could not continue to run the farm at a profit 
and much of the land began to be disused. I tried to hold down a public job for a while, but I also had to care for my ailing aunt and my aging grandmother. My three cousins and my brother refused to return, and all turned over their rights to their land. I had been abandoned, same as the land had been abandoned. When my grandmother fell desperately ill, she begged me to move into her house so she could remain in her home until her death. She said that had been the way all her ancestors had died, and she wanted to be no different. So, very reluctantly, I moved into the huge old farmhouse. I installed fluorescent lighting in the basement, and I still hated and feared that basement, but could not get out of going down there for necessary things. Even though the house had been hooked up to city water by the time I was 15, well, the wells remained in the basement, covered and unused. And then one day, my grandmother was rushed to the hospital. The doctors informed me that she wouldn't leave the hospital, and we argued. She wanted to end her days at home, I told him, but he wouldn't relent. The doctor only changed his mind a week later when doing his rounds. He came into her room while she was still lucid and in pain. She already knew how he felt about her going home, and she asked him to talk with her for a minute about it. And looking from the clipboard in his hand to the watch on his wrist and back again, he sighed and agreed. Granny asked me to leave them alone. Ten minutes later, the doctor came out of her room. I'll have her discharge papers ready by lunch, and you can take her home, Mr. Weiss. She's a very persuasive woman, formidable, even on her deathbed. I respect that kind of determination. He patted my arm and made off quickly to finish rounds. Absolutely astounded, I went back into the room. Granny was sleeping soundly, or maybe pretending to do so to keep from answering questions. I'm still not sure. To this day, I have no clue what she said to that doctor to make him change his mind. But he was right. She was formidable, even so close to death. Within a week, all Granny's family had come by to visit her at least once. It was a hectic, massive, chaotic week, and I forgot to be fearful of the basement. I was just too busy to be afraid. And then Granny died ten days after returning home, and the chaos of people coming in and out to show their respect, give condolences, and, and food that would be thrown out in a few days was maddening for me. There was never a quiet place I could get away from them all to grieve properly. These were the people who'd not been around in years. Quite honestly, <laughs> some of them? I'd never even met at all. And one evening, shortly after the evening meal, when visitors had stopped coming in and I was wishing more of them would go out, I had to go to the basement to bring up more chairs for these people. The grief hit me full on, and I sank to the steps, 
crying in great heaving sobs for the loss of my grandmother. And as the sniffles and sobs ebbed almost to a stop, I heard a sound that caused every hair on my body to stand at attention. Sloshing and dripping. I bolted upstairs without looking toward the well that I knew was covered. The next morning, all the visitors had gone, and one of my cousins had taken my sick aunt with her to visit her family in Arizona. I was completely alone in the house for the first time, and I tried letting the television play but couldn't stand not being able to hear the sounds of the house over the television noise. The radio was no good. I kept turning down the volume until I couldn't hear the music in the next room. Finally, I busied myself with the cleanup of the house. I folded all the extra chairs and leaned them against the wall by the basement door, washed all the dishes by hand. Grandma didn't have a dishwasher, and I started sorting through all the food that I knew would have to be tossed. With just me there, nothing would be eaten of what was brought. By nightfall, I had almost forgotten the recent incident in the basement. I sat on the front porch under the stars, just drinking sweet tea and honey liquor. Sometime after midnight, I made my way inside and locked up, planning to sleep on the downstairs sofa. With the lights out and the liquor relaxing away my tension, I began to doze. It was in this twilight stage that I heard the basement door's distinctive creak. I held my breath. No way that could be happening. There had been no one in the house. I checked several times as I always did. And then, the slapping of wet, bare feet on the hardwood floor of the hallway put me in gear. It wasn't someone in the house. It was the thing from the well. The black feeling of doom preceded the appearance of the little girl, as it always did. The dread settled in the pit of my stomach as I fumbled with the many locks on the front door. Then there was a giggle maybe ten feet behind me and my joints melted with fear. This was it. I was going to die. If the thing behind me didn't rip me apart, the fear would cause my heart to explode. The locks were undone. Leaning against the door for support, I willed my hand to slowly and quietly turn the knob. And the giggle came again. It was much closer, maybe five feet away now and it no longer sounded like the giggle of a little girl who just wanted to play. It sounded malicious and fractured into an otherworldly growl around the edges. Whimpering, my lungs locked. I prayed that the rest of me would not lock as I steadily turned that knob. I would have to step backward toward that thing to open the door and the loud, high-pitched ringing in my ears was deafening as I prepared to do this. 
Sweat poured from my hairline down into my face, and my whole body quivered. Every sense was heightened. Stepping back, the thing's breath poured over the back of my sweaty neck. The shirt I wore was flimsy and stuck to me as I rebounded forward, and the giggle turned into a shriek growl and I shoved the screen door right off its hinges as I made my exit into the blackness of the night. I ran all the way to my aunt and uncle's abandoned house and went inside. My parents' house was much too far to run out in the open. Too scared to turn on the lights, I stood at the window and watched for any sign that the thing had followed me into the house. I stood there for about five minutes before my heartbeat and breathing slowed. By then, I had decided that it had remained at Granny's house. But I had never been more wrong in my entire life. I turned to go to the small sofa on the other side of the room. And there she was. Standing there, still dripping wet, dirty. She didn't move or make a sound. My heart skipped a few beats and my breath stopped in my throat. In the space of a heartbeat, the little girl moved from across the room to six inches from my face. In that span of time, she grew to over seven feet tall, sprouted malignant black wings, curling horns on her forehead, and a whole complement of tiny, yellowed, sharp teeth. A forked black tongue flicked between these teeth and fluttered at my left temple and eyelid. The gatekeeper is gone. I've been waiting so long to come out and play. It flicked that horrid tongue across my forehead, and I screamed so hard my throat felt shredded. Then, I was outside and running blindly across the land. The flutter of wings followed closely, and I pulled at the air with my hands, trying to gain some velocity to outrun this devil. It laughed from above me and kept up without strain. It let me run to exhaustion and I ended up in the old part of the barn where the horse stable equipment had been stored years ago. I collapsed in a sheltered corner, terrified and nearly unable to move. And then the thing fluttered to a landing a few yards away, looking directly at me. Its evil intent readable even in the darkness. It was going to kill me but not before it had its fun. And well, I wasn't going to have any of that. If you're going to kill me, just do it already. I'm not running anymore. And quite honestly, you're not scaring me anymore. Just do it. My hand landed on an old branding iron as I scooted back to the wall. Gatekeepers. Blood is sassy, huh? It drew out the S sounds until they sounded like the hiss of a snake. The thing's body had elongated and morphed into that of a sexless, serpentine being, although it walked upright like a very lanky man. And so I said, 
I don't know anything about gatekeepers, but I'm done. Do whatever and be done with me. And I gripped the iron rod. The branding circle was against the dirt, and the thing shrieked, opened its ever-widening maw, like that of a giant python that unhinges to swallow its victim's whole, and it rushed me with its arms and wings pointed backward. As it dove at my face, I tilted the branding iron so that the devil impaled itself through the chest. It struggled, snapping its jaws at me, beating at me with its black, tattered wings for what seemed an eternity before it finally drooped and laid still. It had spoke of a gatekeeper, and the best guess I have was that it was talking about my grandma. She never told me anything of the sort, but that had to be what the devil meant. She had trapped it and kept it locked up in that basement somehow. I made my way back to the basement, dragging that impaled devil with me. I threw it down that old well and smiled when I heard it hit the water far, far below. Next morning... I scheduled a workman to come out and fill in both wells. Not cap them, but fill them in with dirt, rocks, and concrete. He argued, but I had learned a lot from Granny, and in the end, I got my wish. It's been a few years now, and I haven't heard or seen the thing. And I just hope that that thing can't come back. But if it does, I'll be ready for it.